Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Years ago, the New York-based psychiatrist Samantha Boardman had her own major wake-up call when one of her patients told her that she didn't enjoy going to their therapy sessions anymore. In fact, she dreaded it. After a bit of prodding, Dr. Boardman came to find what her patient wasn't enjoying was the fact that each of their sessions seemed to focus too heavily on her problems, what was wrong in her life, and the things that never seemed to change. As a result, her patient left their sessions feeling worse, not better. This was a shift for the Harvard-trained psychiatrist. Dr. Boardman realized most of her professional training had been about fixing or managing symptoms. So she returned to school to study something called positive psychology, a practice that, in Dr. Boardman's words, puts the focus on building what's strong, not just fixing what's wrong. She now refers to her work as positive prescription, which is also the name of her website where those hungry for happiness can find simple, affirming advice on optimizing daily life and maximizing your mood, even scaling back stress. Maybe most importantly, her philosophy isn't just giving platitudes about how great you are, though emphasizing your strengths is important. It's providing fuel through creativity, a sense of well-being, and to a degree, style, that is very much your own. This is actually a medical professional who understands the hardwired chemical connection between looking awesome and really feeling awesome. She believes that building on the things that make you feel good is the key to success that so many doctors miss, just like she once did, but never again. Hi, Samantha. Hi. Thank you so much for being a guest on Unstyled today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, good. I'm so excited to have you here. I would love for you to tell the story in your own words about when that breakthrough happened with your patient. Well, many years ago, I studied in medical school, I'd studied what was wrong with people. And it was really my focus as I was trying to like, sort of dial down their symptoms or dial down their misery in psychiatry. And that's what you do as a psychiatrist. And it never occurred to me to focus on anything else. And one day when I thought I'd been making a lot of progress with a patient of mine. So we it was were, a woman. A woman, yes. Um, and she was wildly smart, about a 38, 39-year-old woman. And she wasn't working anymore. She's taking care of her three kids. And she was just overwhelmed, depressed. So I thought, okay, I, I know what I can do. I can prescribe something, a medication. She can come in and meet with me. And we'll discuss sort of ways to sort of minimize the conflict and stress in her life. She came in one day and just said, you know what, Dr. Boardman? I hate coming here. All we do is talk about what's wrong with me, and it makes me feel worse, and I'm done. And I never saw her again. I got fired. And it was a real wake-up call for me. Did you try to talk talk her out of it? I did. I was really taken aback and because it was really what I was trained to do. I mean, that's all I knew how to do. And this wonderful old psychiatrist said to me many, many years ago, before this patient, that the whole point of therapy was to change your past. And I didn't know what he really meant by that. And he said, well, it's actually to sort of let go of that story you've been telling. Once you realize that it's just part of a story, it's a truth, but not necessarily the whole truth. It's something that you've experienced. You might have a mental illness. You might have depression. You might have anxiety, but that doesn't define you. It doesn't necessarily have to be your identity. It's part of who you are, but it isn't this cloud that hovers over you and sort of has to inform every everything about you. And so that was really liberating to sort of give the patients back their lives in some way. 
I do think that there is an inordinate amount of pressure on young women to be successful, to be creative, to be beautiful, to be sexy and desirable to a partner, to be fertile. I, I'm curious in your profession, how do you sort of guide them in having more perspective about how to manage that? I'd say number one, to fortify themselves. I think women, young women are really bad at taking care of themselves. They're good at taking care of other people. But that sort of basic stuff that, you know, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead mentality, you know, they've got like sort of circles under their eyes. They're the, you know, the first person in the office and last one to leave. So shifting that word from pamper to fortify. Fortify. Because pampering sort of, it's sort of, I think that people perceive that as being self-indulgent, you know, um, being um, excessively girly. And it's not about that at all. It's about it's really about nurturing yourself. Yeah. I mean, how do you stay strong? And some of those basic things like, you know, how much sleep are you getting? Um, how are you eating? And these were things I never learned in medical school. Nobody, unless somebody had an eating disorder, I wasn't really focusing on what somebody was eating or even when they were eating, how much sort of junk food they consumed. And that type of thing that really actually can affect their mental health and you know, their ability to concentrate, their mood and things like that. And especially when you're stressed out. It's exactly what you need is to fortify yourself and sort of be sleeping a lot and, you know, eating as well as you can, Um, exercising. How are you using technology? Things like that. You know, are you sort of staying up late, um, you know, checking Instagram or, or, you know, using things to help you stay stronger? And sometimes you do the opposite of what you need. You will skip going to the gym. You will, you know, eat, um, you know, that whole pizza and do all those things that actually, so you get this sort of double whammy effect of stress. So the one of the first things I'd say is fortify yourself. Um, I think the second thing I'd say is explore, discovery, stay curious, keep asking questions, rethink what you think you know. Um, and it's to keep that kind of open mindset, that curiosity about what you're doing and how you're living your life um, is, is really important. And to find people of different ages, like find a mentor, you know, somebody who who inspires you, but also a mentee. And it's always like a dialogue, that kind of back and forth and being around people, I think, who have different perspectives can really help open, you know, your mind, especially when you sort of, things when you're stressed out get really narrow. Do you think that exploring kind of relates to this process of keeping tabs on yourself? Do I really enjoy this? Do mm-hmm. I really want to become a lawyer? Or do I really want to live in the city? I'm here because I ended up here, not because I've actually consciously chose to live here. Sometimes life tends to dictate as opposed to us dictating like what our choices are. Absolutely. And it, it's this sort of this sense of autopilot or default sort of mode that you get into and you're playing whack-a-mole but you're not really like making decisions. It's just sort of happening or we call it like sliding, not deciding into doing things. So one exercise that I think is really helpful is sliding, not deciding. Yeah. You got to decide. Just don't choose. Yes. Actively choose. You know, there's a lot of sliding, I think, that happens because we're all so busy, you know, and it's sort of deciding, I always ask that question, what's the difference? Can you live a a whole life by sliding? You certainly can. Oh God, I'm scared. We're deciding creatures. Our brains feel better when we decide. And a lot of people don't realize that. They're sort of waiting or just sort of, you know, even, oh, should I move in with my, you know, 
significant other? Like, should I move in with them? And then somebody will, they'll be like, oh, my rent's running out. We'll just move in together. Like, no, you've got to decide that you guys want to move in together. This is a choice you should actively be making, not a passive, oh, this just kind of happened. Um, and people, you know, it does, even when we've made the wrong decision, we feel better about it than having it just having happened to us. That sort of autopilot mode is really... Um, it sort of removes us from what we value most. And so it's why sometimes I ask people to do this exercise is sort of write down, um, you know, on a piece of paper, what do you value most in your life? Like, what are the three things that you really like hold dear to you? Um, people will say my health, learning, being a good person, giving back, um, my family. And then you say, okay, how do you spend your time, especially your free time? You know, and sometimes it can be kind of eye-opening, the lack of overlap, like uh, in a sort of social media hole on the weekend, um, binge watching Game of Thrones, you know, whatever, and in a way that isn't necessarily in concert with their actual values. Um, so when you have more overlap between how you spend your time and what you value most, it really kind of helps fortify you, I think, and stay strong, and especially in the face of stress. That's really interesting. What's number three? Is there a third one? Oh, yeah. Um, number three is connecting. And mm -hmm. connecting would be, you know, connecting to others. I was taught in medical school and sort of people think happiness comes from within. And it comes from with. What are you doing with other people? And we often turn our backs on our connections when we're super stressed out. It'll be like, oh, I'm just going to stay home. I don't feel like it. And that's precisely the moment we need our loved ones around us to sort of bolster us up. We live with all this productivity porn all the time. Like, how do you get more done? But then you end up sort of sacrificing, I think, a lot of the social connections. Productivity porn. Yes, yes. How do you get more done? Task how do you rabbit. put more into the day? And you can get other people and outsource it. And then also <sighs> connecting is larger than yourself. Like having a sense of purpose, why you're doing what you're doing and you're living your life according to your value system. So I'd say those three things, like fortifying, exploring, and connecting. That's the advice I give. So I would love to talk a little bit about personal style. You and I had some really beautiful shared appreciation around how personal style can really enhance your mood. It can enhance your perception of yourself, how you project yourself in certain situations. I would love for you to tell us a little bit about what your philosophy is around that connection between how we feel and how we look. Clothing gets a lot of attention or style does for sort of oh how other people perceive you, but less, I think, well understood is how much clothing and style affects how you feel. And so it isn't just how your appearance will affect somebody else's impression of you, but how actually you can wear a piece of clothing that can help you feel strong, that can help you feel beautiful, that even on the worst day can help you sort of feel empowered in some way to navigate your way through it. And so I really think of that as a positive intervention for people. And there have been these interesting studies with people who were asked volunteers to wear a white coat. And they were given a multiple choice questionnaire, some math problems. And then the those who had the white coat on and who were, knew it was a doctor's coat were much more likely to persevere. And they were much more focused than those who weren't wearing a white coat. And they did a similar experiment, just having the white coat thrown on a table. So you had to be wearing it to show the difference between this white coat that you wore was going to sort of empowered people to work harder and persevere and to focus more. And it 
really affected the way they behaved. It shaped their behavior in ways that people who didn't wear the white coat, it didn't shape them. We have this false notion that, you know, I am who I am. But I think around clothing that there are always these opportunities to um, expand ourselves and to sort of take advantage of the fact that our, that our identities are so fluid. Clothing can actually be this sort of positive intervention that can help us get unstuck from this fixed sense of identity that isn't necessarily true. Oftentimes we get feedback about being a media company that has this belief that covering or being passionate about fashion and shopping and beauty and nutrition is just as important and is just as gratifying and has as big of an influence in our lives as understanding how to manage your finances and being educated about the upcoming election and that seeing all of that as carrying equal weight in our lives, you know, in in order to enhance our lives. This is not like a zero-sum game. It's not an either-or, you know, or you're serious about politics and, you know, issues versus beauty and fashion, that it actually, like all of these deserve equal attention and they're just this kaleidoscope of who we are and things we care about and there's no ranking them yeah you know in some way that like that there's some sort of hierarchy that this these things sort of exist in but also we were talking about red lipstick i know you have a theory about the red shoe diaries but i would love for you to tell the story about red lipstick that story um that was after world war ii when one of the camps had been concentration camps had been liberated and i think it was a, a british red cross worker who was horrified by the devastation around him and they were trying to help the survivors from this concentration camp and lots of things had been sent but somehow this huge crate of red lipstick arrived and what could be more useless and this British officer writes in his journal about why that was just the most irritating sort of reckless thing to arrive and how mistaken he was and that how many of the women were so sort of moved by this gesture and were so sort of engaged by the red lipstick and needed to put it on because he wrote very sort of eloquently that it gave them back their humanity and that there was something about sort of attending to their sense of femininity and being a human being again that holding that lipstick sort of symbolized for them. You know, in the old lunatic asylums, there were beauty parlors that you would go to and you would have, you know, your hair done. And that was kind of part of the treatment process. And that, you know, is long gone. Sounds like an HBO series, I had such to say. <laughs> can you imagine? It, it really does. How, you know, this ability to take care of oneself can help you feel human. And what is it? Is it sort of the chicken or the egg? Is it actually like, you know, does the red lipstick help you feel better, you know, in some way, just wearing it? Is it helping you feel better? Or if you choose to put red lipstick on, like, is that action you know, a, a sign of your mental health? And I, I don't know the answer to that question. I think it probably works both ways. It's not just psychosomatic, it's somatopsychic. It's also sort of like what you're wearing can also inform how your head feels. But it really just speaks to the importance of and the value of self-care that tends to be dismissed. We feel guilty about it. You know, it's sort of getting beauty out of the closet and giving women the permission to feel good about it and embrace it and take care of themselves in the way that they they want to. You know, why as a society don't we value style or clothing or fashion in the same way we value the arts in other ways. And I think some people believe it's because it's, it goes back to Plato in that 
you know, the idea of sort of a naked raw truth. And, you know, the moment anything's enclosed, it's sort of, you know, hiding something. Even the word we use, like fabric, it's sort of, or to fabricate seems something sort of removed from the truth. And it's as though like any of these processes are sort of removing you or disguising something that's true beneath it. Um, so I, th I, want, I think that sort of contributes to our lack of trust even of the way fashion or, you know, beauty can transform us. There's some sort of but it's exactly cultural the, distrust. But it's also the exact opposite of that, though. Totally. No, I, I totally agree with you. But it, I think that's sort of a perception that maybe lingers over it. I mean, I'm sure that some people can use those tools as a, as a means of concealing themselves. But I think that it's just really just getting to know yourself better and really taking pleasure in that process of getting to know yourself. And I think that we have those moments throughout life, not necessarily just with clothes, but in places that we go, you know, where we feel like we've been there before, or people that we meet that we feel like we have like a very natural rapport with them. And I think the same thing is really true about the way that we express ourselves through how we actually care for ourselves and the things that we wear. But how do you not feel guilty about it, you know, in some way? Oh, it's, like it's you're wasting money on this, you know, that like, oh, you know, think what else you could be doing with that. And, and the, 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 this is a shame. And, there's a yeah. shame attached to it and a total yeah. stigma, especially even in our closest relationships. But I feel guilty spending a lot of money on something. And I'm ashamed of myself that, you know, I've, I've worked hard for that money. I've chosen this whatever it is that I'm going to spend it on because I feel as though it's going to enhance my life and it's going to bring me pleasure. So why do I give a shit what people think about how much I spend on it? I guess, you know, I think as we get older somehow too, that it does get easier to take care of ourselves and that kind of how we evolve and even our bodies evolve when you put something on that really... You feel like you're home in some way. But what's also really interesting is how you sometimes a few years later put that same thing on and it doesn't feel like you at all. To me, it's like when you go back and you read an old book and all the stuff that you underlined or, you know, all the pages you dog-eared, you're like, oh, that's not what's important. This is. And I think that the sort of that amazing, when you go back and like reread those and old And you're books, disappointed. You're yeah. like, I loved this so much the first time and now it's not as good. And I think that speaks to like how we do evolve and change and even our style can change sometimes. And sometimes something that did feel like a second skin isn't anymore. I see there's something sort of beautiful in that is how you sort of can let go of things and embrace other ones. But also it's it's helping us to redefine what beauty means and yeah. what beautiful is. In Nancy Atkoff's book about survival of the prettiest, she writes, can you imagine a society, you know, a world living without beauty in it? And how it's quite hard to define sometimes. And she says it's like you know it when you see it. You can't describe it. It just, you know what it is for you. And I think that sort of, that self-fashioning, that self-expression, that sort of, you know, embodiment of beauty in your eyes. And for us to sort of get comfortable with that is beautiful. No, I love that. Samantha, it's been such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for being on Unstyled. Thank you so much. What an honor to be here. I'm so excited. Thank you. I hope you're inspired after hearing Dr. Boardman's story. For even more Unstyled Extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be super grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on iTunes and rate us while you're there. You can head to Refinery29.com to find this episode and more. And make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was produced and edited by Elisa Kreisinger, with production assistance from Rebecca Easley for Refinery29, copy and research support provided by Lila Brilson. 
Our theme music today is by the artist Koff. Hannes Brown produced our episode music, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruest. This is our last episode of this season, but don't fret. We have a bonus episode for you with Refinery29's own Connie Wang on finding your style up next. <laughs>